Chapter Ten of Pyrrhus by Jacob Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Reconquest of Macedon, B.C. two seventy three to two seventy two. It was the great misfortune of Pyrrhus's life, a misfortune resulting apparently from an inherent and radical defect in his character that he had no settled plans or purposes but embarked in one project after another as accident or caprice might incline him apparently without any forethought consideration or design he seemed to form no plan to live for no object to contemplate no end but was governed by a sort of blind and instinctive impulse which led him to love danger and to take a wild and savage delight in the performance of military exploits on their own account and without regard to any ultimate end or aim to be accomplished by them thus although he evinced great power he produced no permanent effects there was no steadiness or perseverance in his action and there could be none for in his whole course of policy there were no ulterior ends in view by which perseverance could be sustained he was consequently always ready to abandon any enterprise in which he might be engaged as soon as it began to be involved in difficulties requiring the exercise of patience endurance and self-denial and to embark in any new undertaking provided that it promised to bring him speedily upon a field of battle he was in a word the type and exemplar of that large class of able men who waste their lives in a succession of efforts which though they evince great talent in those who perform them being still without plan or aim and without producing any result such men often like pyrrhus attain to a certain species of greatness they are famed among men for what they seem to have the power to do and not for anything that they have actually done in accordance with this view of pyrrhus's character we see him changing continually the sphere of his action from one country to another gaining great victories everywhere and evincing in all his operations in the organizing and assembling of his armies in his marches in his encampments and in the disposition of his troops on the field of battle and especially in his conduct during the period of actual conflict the most indomitable energy and the most consummate military skill but when the battle was fought and the victory gained and an occasion supervened requiring a cool and calculating deliberation in the forming of future plans and a steady adherence to them when formed the character and resources of pyrrhus's mind were found woefully wanting the first summons from any other quarter 
inviting him to a field of more immediate excitement and action was always sufficient to call him away thus he changed his field of action successively from macedon to italy from italy to sicily from sicily back to italy and from italy to macedon again perpetually making new beginnings but nowhere attaining any ends his determination to invade macedon once more on his return to epirus from italy was prompted apparently by the mere accident that the government was unsettled and that antigonus was insecure in his possession of the throne he had no intention when he first embarked on this scheme of attempting the conquest of macedon but only designed to make a predatory incursion into the country for the purpose of plunder its defenceless condition affording him as he thought a favourable opportunity of doing this the plea on which he justified this invasion was that antigonus was his enemy ptolemy serranus had made a treaty of alliance with him and had furnished him with troops for recruiting and reinforcing his armies in italy as has already been stated but antigonus when called upon had refused to do this this of course gave pyrrhus ample justification as he imagined for his intended incursion into the macedonian realms besides this however there was another justification namely that of necessity although pyrrhus had been compelled to withdraw from italy he had not returned by any means alone but had brought quite a large army with him consisting of many thousands of men all of whom must now be fed and paid all the resources of his own kingdom had been well-nigh exhausted by the drafts which he had made upon them to sustain himself in italy and it was now necessary he thought to embark in some war as a means of finding employment and subsistence for these troops he determined therefore on every account to make a foray into macedon before setting off on his expedition he contrived to obtain a considerable force from among the gauls as auxiliaries antigonus also had gauls in his service for they themselves were divided as it would seem in respect both to their policy and their leaders as well as the macedonians and antigonus taking advantage of their dissensions had contrived to enlist some portion of them in his cause while the rest were the more easily on that very account induced to join the expedition of pyrrhus things being in this state pyrrhus after completing his preparations commenced his march and soon crossed the macedonian frontier as was usually the case with the enterprises which he engaged in he was in the outset very successful he conquered several cities and towns as he advanced and soon began to entertain 
higher views in respect to the object of his expedition than he had at first formed instead of merely plundering the frontier as he had at first intended he began to think that it would be possible for him to subdue antigonus entirely and re-annex the whole of macedon to his dominions he was well known in macedon his former campaigns in that country having brought him very extensively before the people and the army there he had been a general favourite too among them at the time when he had been their ruler the people admired his personal qualities as a soldier and had been accustomed to compare him with alexander whom in his appearance and manners and in a certain air of military frankness and generosity which characterized him he was said strongly to resemble pyrrhus now found as he advanced into the country of macedonia that the people were disposed to regard him with the same sentiments of favour which they had formerly entertained for him several of the garrisons of the cities joined his standard and the detachments of troops which antigonus sent forward to the frontier to check his progress instead of giving him battle went over to him in a body and espoused his cause in a word pyrrhus found that unexpectedly to himself his expedition instead of being merely an incursion across the frontiers on a plundering foray was assuming the character of a regular invasion in short the progress that he made was such that it soon became manifest that to meet antigonus in one pitched battle and to gain one victory was all that was required to complete the conquest of the country he accordingly concentrated his forces more and more strengthened himself by every means in his power and advanced further and further into the interior of the country antigonus began to retire desirous perhaps of reaching some ground where he could post himself advantageously pyrrhus acting with his customary energy soon overtook the enemy he came up with the rear of antigonus's army in a narrow defile among the mountains at least the place is designated as a narrow defile by the ancient historian who narrates these events though from the number of men that were engaged in the action which ensued as well as from the nature of the action itself as a historian describes it it would seem that there must have been a considerable breadth of level ground in the bottom of the gorge the main body of antigonus's troops was the phalanx the macedonian phalanx is considered one of the most extraordinary military contrivances of ancient times the invention of it was ascribed to philip the father of alexander the great though it was probable that it was only improved and perfected and brought into general use but not really originated by him the single phalanx was formed of a body of about four thousand men these men were arranged in a compact form 
the whole body consisting of sixteen ranks and each rank of two hundred and fifty-six men these men wore each a short sword to be used in cases of emergency and were defended by large shields the main peculiarity however of their armour and the one on which the principal power of the phalanx depended as a military body was in the immensely long spears which they carried these spears were generally twenty-one and sometimes twenty-four feet long the handles were slender though strong and the points were tipped with steel the spears were not intended to be thrown but to be held firmly in the hands and pointed toward the enemy and they were so long and the ranks of the men were so close together that the spears of the fifth rank projected several feet before the men who stood in the front rank thus each man in the front rank had five steel-pointed spears projecting to different distances before him while the men who stood in ranks further behind rested their spears upon the shoulders of those who were before them so as to elevate the points into the air the men were protected by large shields which when the phalanx was formed in close array just touched each other and formed an impregnable defence in a word the phalanx as it moved slowly over the plain presented the appearance of a vast monster covered with scales and bristling with points of steel a sort of military porcupine which nothing could approach or in any way injure missiles thrown toward it were intercepted by the shields and fell harmless to the ground darts arrows javelins and every other weapon which could be projected from a distance were equally ineffectual and no one could come near enough to men thus protected to strike at them with the sword even cavalry were utterly powerless in attacking such chevaux de frise as the phalanx presented no charge however furious could break its serrated ranks an onset upon it could only end in impaling the men and the horses that made it together on the points of the innumerable spears to form a phalanx and to manoeuvre it successfully required a special training both on the part of the officers and men and in the macedonian armies the system was carried to very high perfection when foreign auxiliaries however served under macedonian generals they were not generally formed in this way but were allowed to fight under their own leaders and in the accustomed manner of their respective nations the army of antigonus accordingly as he was retiring before pyrrhus consisted of two portions the phalanx was in advance and large bodies of gauls armed and arrayed in their usual manner were in the rear of course pyrrhus as he came up with this force in the ravine or valley encountered the gauls first their lines it would seem filled up the whole valley at the place where pyrrhus overtook them so that at the outset of the contest pyrrhus had them only to engage there was not space sufficient for the phalanx 
to come to their aid besides the phalanx and the bodies of gauls there was a troop of elephants in antigonus's army their position as it would seem was between the phalanx and the gauls this being the state of things and pyrrhus coming up to the attack in the rear would of course encounter first the gauls then the elephants and lastly the most formidable of all the phalanx itself pyrrhus advanced to the attack of the gauls with the utmost fury and though they made a very determined resistance they were soon overpowered and almost all cut to pieces the troop of elephants came next the army of pyrrhus flushed with their victory over the gauls pressed eagerly on and soon so surrounded the elephants and hemmed them in that the keepers of them perceived that all hope of resistance was vain they surrendered without an effort to defend themselves the phalanx now remained it had hastily changed its front and it stood on the defensive pyrrhus advanced toward it with his forces bringing his men up in array in front of the long lines of spears and paused the bristling monster remained immovable evincing no disposition to advance against its enemy but awaiting apparently an attack pyrrhus rode out in front of his lines and surveyed the body of macedonians before him he found that he knew the officers personally having served with them before in the wars in which he had been engaged in macedon in former years he saluted them calling them by name they were pleased with being thus remembered and recognized by a personage so renowned pyrrhus urged them to abandon antigonus who had as he maintained no just title to the crown and whose usurped power he was about to overthrow and invited them to enter into his service as the ancient and rightful sovereign of their country the officers seemed much disposed to listen to these overtures in fine they soon decided to accede to them the phalanx went over to pyrrhus's side in a body and antigonus being thus deprived of his last remaining support left the field in company with a few personal followers and fled for his life of course pyrrhus found himself at once in complete possession of the macedonian kingdom antigonus did not indeed entirely give up the contest he retreated toward the coast where he contrived to hold possession for a time of a few maritime towns but his power as king of macedon was gone some few of the interior cities attempted for a time to resist pyrrhus's rule but he soon overpowered them some of the cities that he thus conquered he garrisoned with gauls of course after such a revolution as this a great deal was required to be done to settle the affairs of the government on their new footing and to make the kingdom secure in the hands of the conqueror but no one in the least degree acquainted with the character and tendencies of pyrrhus's mind could expect that he would be at all disposed to attend to these duties he had neither the sagacity 
to plan nor the steadiness of purpose to execute such measures he could conquer but that was all to secure the results of his conquests was utterly beyond his power in fact far from making such a use of his power as to strengthen his position and establish a permanent and settled government he so administered the affairs of state or rather he so neglected them that very soon an extended discontent and dissatisfaction began to prevail the gauls whom he had left as garrisons in the conquered cities governed them in so arbitrary a manner and plundered them so recklessly as to produce extreme irritation among the people they complained earnestly to pyrrhus pyrrhus paid little attention to their representations to fight a battle with an open enemy on the field was always a pleasure to him but to meet and grapple with difficulties of this kind to hear complaints and listen to evidence and discuss and consider remedies was all weariness and toil to him what he would have done and what would have been the end of his administration in macedon had he been left to himself cannot now be known for very fortunately as he deemed it he was suddenly relieved of all the embarrassment in which he was gradually getting involved as he had often been relieved in similar circumstances before by an invitation which came to him just at this time to embark in a new military enterprise which would draw him away from the country altogether it is scarcely necessary to say that pyrrhus accepted the invitation with the most eager alacrity the circumstances of the case will be explained in the next chapter End of chapter ten